Not quite. Now you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. (laughs) Revelation 19 and just verse 10 this morning. As the title of our message is The Spirit of Prophecy. Uh, Prophecy is a word that is much maligned in, in a lot of Christendom today. I specifically use that word Christendom rather than Christianity because uh, a lot of Christendom uh, just kind of skims along the edges of Christianity, and unfortunately, at least according to the Bible. Uh, and prophecy is one of those areas where there is just a great shortcoming because it is so misunderstood, I think, is, is the main reason why that is. And prophecy is really no different than any other section of the Bible. And as we're going to see today, in fact, it is very, uh, it is the message, future events. I think almost every one of our hymns that we sang this morning, for example, made reference to future events at some point. Uh, at least anyway, the future is very important to our overall understanding of who God is. And prophecy isn't just telling us what the future is. It's a major part of it uh, at any rate. But uh, God does not leave us here to live on this earth not knowing what the plan is. Imagine if you were uh, well, it doesn't take a lot of imagination if you were in the military <laughs> at any rate to uh, go through life not knowing the big picture, not knowing what the plan is. And it's very disorienting and very disheartening and is a cause for for low morale among the troops and sailors and, and Marines and airmen and all of the, the people in the military. One of the big problems is they don't they don't know what the overall goal is. We as Christians don't have that excuse. We don't have the excuse of moping around because we don't know what God is doing in the world or what he's going to do in the future. He has revealed it to us in the Bible, in his word. And that's what we're going to look at today, the spirit of prophecy. In fact, Revelation 19.10 says, then I fell at his feet, John speaking, of course, then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's why we have, I personally at least, kind of have an issue with Christians, people who just want to talk about Jesus, but don't want to talk about prophecy. That last phrase there, the last sentence, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The message of Jesus Christ and salvation through faith alone in Christ should not in any way, shape, or form be divorced or separated from his message about the future. The two are very much intertwined. And in fact, That's what the whole point of the book of Revelation actually is, is to show us that the message of Christ is one that has to do with today, 
and it's one that has to do with the future, and those two are just hand in glove. And if you try to separate one from the other, you're not getting the whole message, and that's that's a problem. That's why we, I believe that's a big part of the reason why we see a lot of the problems that we do in the Christian church today. Uh, and I could spend the whole time talking about that. Instead, we'll just move on to our passage this morning. And remembering where we are in the book, we're getting towards the end of this, uh, the main body of this book that John wrote for us, the study of the tribulation period. It, it is in the section that, that the angel told him or Christ told him to write the things which will take place after these things. That began in chapter four, continues all the way to the end of the book. Uh, chapter chapter 6 through 19 uh-oh uh describe the the tribulation and the second coming and today we find ourselves in revelation 19:10 over the last couple of weeks we've spent some time studying uh verses 7 through 9 and this issue of the bride of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we spent a lot of time uh, going over the details of that. I'd encourage you to listen to those messages again or ask any questions uh, later on if you want to. That's, that's of course, perfectly acceptable. Last time we saw that, that these are the true words of God. This invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So we've had kind of a couple of big deals here in the last, these couple of sentences. We have the true words of God. If you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you are blessed. That's the true words of God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. At any rate, we spent some time looking at the bride. We saw that in this particular context of Revelation uh, 19 and following, this, this bride that is mentioned here is a compilation of people. It is the people of God, the people who have trusted in Christ. They are uh, the bride here, and the bride is also, we saw Revelation 21, when we get there, we'll see that the, that the bride specifically mentioned is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and that, that it is uh, the people who will be there are hand in glove with the place, just like Jesus and his kingdom, king and kingdom, they go absolutely Together, the people who will be in the new Jerusalem for eternity with Christ make up, uh, are even said to be the place, like the Obermeyer's house. Uh, it's where we, it's where I live. It's known as the Obermeyer. Same kind of, same kind of ideas being put forward here, mentioning the people who will be in the new Jerusalem that is specifically named as the bride in Revelation 21. Before we get to this marriage supper of the Lamb as God's people, we will go through the Bema seat judgment or the judgment seat of Christ we saw last time. That's why these people are said to have the fine linen 
uh, that they are that was given to them, this fine linen that they are clothed with, and it is the righteous acts of the saints. That's uh, alluding to this judgment seat of Christ that we will go through before we enter into this incredible period with the Lord. And then uh, we saw the statement, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, This blessing is so great that it was called the true words of God. Just like when Jesus says uh, in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, such and such. He uses that phrase about 25 times in the Gospel of John. No, no other Gospel writer, none of the other Gospels actually even have that phrase. John is a person who is very concerned with the truth and uh, this idea of the truth. And it's a way that he draws attention to what Jesus is saying or what is written here in Revelation by calling it the truth or quoting Jesus as saying truly, truly, like John 6.47, for example. Uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life, drawing attention to the fact that salvation is based on a single condition, faith, believing, trust in, all those words mean the same thing. And if you believe in God and his offer of salvation, you have eternal life. Here in Revelation, John says that the blessing of being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb is the true words of God. This is, you are blessed. You're not blessed because you have money in your bank account or your 401k is doing great. If your 401k is doing great, I'd like to get some advice from you (laughs) in these times. But you're not blessed because of that. You are blessed because you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that shows us the importance of being invited and by definition, the importance of accepting that invitation to the marriage supper. And of course, we saw last time we are invited through the gospel when God transfers Christ's righteousness to us by way of faith. When we do that, we are guaranteed to be in the kingdom with him, the kingdom on earth and for eternity. Which brings us to verse 10 today. Uh, that says, then I fell at his feet after this message about the the bride and the marriage supper of the lamb. John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So today we will look at this John, uh, the Apostle John, engaging in false worship and a fellow servant in fearless futurism. We do not need to uh, be ashamed of our belief in the Bible and what it says about future events. Uh, We don't need to, just like it says in Proverbs, we don't need to have a sudden fear or fear of the unknown. We certainly don't need to have fear of Uh, trusting in God and his word. But first, 
let's look at the false worship that John engages in here. It says that he fell at his feet to worship. And the Greek term for worship is, is the word that's very similarly related to our prostrate. Uh, the, the English word prostrate means to literally fall down before someone. And that is what worship is. That This is another area in Christianity, Christendom, that is very uh, misunderstood and uh, misapplied uh, and these kinds of things. Worship is not uh, necessarily the singing of a song or playing an instrument or dancing or any of these kinds of activities. It is lowering yourself before another person, or in this uh, uh, context, lowering yourself before God, recognizing that he is higher than you are, that you cannot attain to his level, and therefore I bow down before you as God. That is worship. That is what worship is, recognizing that someone is greater (laughs) Then you are recognizing that this person, this uh, God has power over me. And what John is doing here is a perfect example of worship. And, and he expresses it uh, physically in this instance. But most of the time, worship is done mentally, like so much of the Christian life. It is lived between our ears, primarily. And then what we're thinking in our head shapes what we do with our feet and hands and our eyes. And so if if we're controlling our thinking, our actions are going to have a whole lot better uh, chance of falling in line with what we're thinking. So worship is a, a mental attitude, a mental submission to the God of the universe and what he's revealed to us in his word. That's truly what worship is. So we don't have uh, the worship time in our church service. Well, well, the whole thing is. We're worshiping God right now as we study his word. As if our minds are in the right place, we're worshiping God as we learn more about him and who he is, and we submit to the truths that we find in his word. And so we can notice here in, uh, in this passage, John doesn't make any mention of the angels playing this incredible music and flashing lights and fog machines and all this. Oh, you just can't believe it. No, he doesn't. No, there's none of that involved in this worship that he engages in here. Uh, the, the, the only things that we have here are a man, an angel, and the spoken word. Of course, the angel must have been an incredible sight for John, and he's overwhelmed by what this angel is saying to him. The angel's words are obviously very worthy of of praise, but notice what the angel uh, says to him again. But, He falls at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We can cut out that first part or the middle part there. 
Do not do that. NASB even puts a semicolon. You can cut all that stuff out. I used to love that in uh, school when you're having to write definitions or whatever and they had a, a colon or something like, oh, good, I don't have to write all that stuff down. Just the first part. That's Don't do that, kids. <laughs> all of it's important, but in this case, we can cut that out uh, and we're going to look at it, but for this false worship part, the angel says, do not do that. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. I am just simply... Uh, the messenger here. And he says uh, the term for do not do that is actually orao is the Greek term. Orao me, it says, a present active imperative. This is a kind of command. A present uh, tense imperative is one that is getting across the point like don't do that, don't ever do that when it has the negative me on there. Uh, is a negative saying, don't ever do that. Don't do that now. Don't do it in the future. Never do that is essentially what it's saying. If it doesn't have the negative thing, uh, the negative uh, particle there, then it would be something, do this all the time. That's what a present active imperative is in the Greek language. You should always be doing this. In this case, it's never do that is what he's uh, trying to get across. And obviously this idea of worshiping angels is a tendency for people. When they reveal them, they can reveal themselves as, as uh, regular people. The book of Hebrews says that sometimes we may have entertained angels and not even, not even known it. So they don't have to appear kind of in their glory, if you will, but sometimes they do, and people have a tendency to worship them when they do that. Colossians 2.18, Paul says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. Taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Don't do that. Don't let people defraud you by uh, worshiping the angels. Uh, some facets, the, some denominations that fall under the banner of Christendom, you know, have the patron saints of whatever. Oh, we're not worshiping the angels. We just have a saint for this, that, or the other thing. Kind of falls along the same, uh, along the same lines. And don't do that. Don't let anyone defraud you of your prize. By doing these kinds of things, there is a there is a prize. There's a crown that we saw last week for being faithful to the Lord, looking forward to Him coming again, not getting sidetracked into these other uh, false areas like worship of saints or worship of the angels and these kinds of these kinds of activities. Instead. You should be worshiping God, the angel says. And he actually uses a different tense here when he says uh, worship God, different than what it is used in the first phrase, do not do that. Do not do that, present active imperative. This stuff doesn't really show up in the English. That's why Greek, that's why the Bible was written in Greek because it it is... Uh, an inflected language, so it has these endings on it that tell us 
what the tense is and give us all of this extra information. That's why Christ came at a particular time, according to Galatians 4. He came at a particular time when Greek was the main language used in the world and can express ideas precisely in it like this. Do not ever worship angels or do not ever have any sort of idol in your life. Instead, worship God, aorist, active, imperative. Do it now. Do this right now. This is something that you have to do, and there is an expectation of completion. This is the kind of command that we think of. Uh, Great example today. Uh, You can tell, tell somebody, you know, when it snows, plow my driveway. That would be a present active imperative sort of situation. Uh, You wake up today, plow the driveway. Errorist active imperative. I can't get out of the house until you plow the driveway. You need to do it now. That's the idea that the angel is saying here when he says, worship God. You need to stop worshiping me. Don't ever do that. Instead, worship God. And this is uh, obviously something that God is, is very, very interested in. This idea of having no gods before him, having nothing that is in, a, in competition with who God is in your life. In fact, it was the very first commandment that God gave to the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 20 is, don't have any false gods. Don't put anything above me. And John was a person who was obviously, as a Jewish man, he was very familiar with the Ten Commandments. He knew that he should not be doing this. Uh, At the end of his epistle, 1 John, one of his epistles, the very last phrase is, 1 John 5.21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He knew that he shouldn't be doing this. He's going to do it again in Revelation 22.8. We will see him uh, worship perhaps this same angel again. Uh, And so for us, this comes down to we need to worship him the correct way. That was our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Do not be idolaters, Paul says, as some of them were, speaking of the Israelites, as it, was, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That is a reference to the golden calf is what this is referring to, as their false worship immediately led to immorality. That's what the, it's a very polite way of saying the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. They engaged in worship of the golden calf and then immorality. And verse 8, nor let us act immorality as, as act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. There were consequences for their immorality. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
And then we, we need to understand that, of course, we can sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, however, we're not tempted beyond what we're able. God will make a way for us to be able to endure it. Doesn't say that he removes, a, removes that temptation or he's going to take us out of this tempting area. He says there's a way to endure it. Perhaps it is to remove it completely, remove you from that uh, situation completely. Maybe there isn't a way to physically remove you from it, but you can still endure it. You can still live victoriously in the midst of it. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Whenever there is something in your life that is in a higher place than God, you are going to run into issues. And uh, nine times out of 10, those issues are immorality. You're going to have some sort of immorality in your life like these people did. Uh, the Israelites. And so we need to be careful that we are worshiping him the correct way. And we also need to, of course, make sure that we are worshiping only him. First Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians, uh, you'll remember when we studied those two books, uh, the Thessalonians were idolaters. They turned to Christ, turned to God through Christ, serving only him. And note that verse 10, I love that, First Thessalonians 1.10. So they did that. They turned from idols to God, and now they wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is one of our uh, pre-tribulation verses that we like to go to. Uh, we're waiting for his son to come uh, in the clouds to catch us up to him, to rescue us from the wrath that is to come in this tribulation Period. So we ought to be worshiping only him, not engaging in false worship like John literally does here, falls down before an angel. Of course, we're not to be doing that, but we also need to be careful in our worship to ensure we're doing it the right way. We're worshiping the right God of the Bible through Christ and that he is the only one. He is the one who has absolute superiority over everything in every area of our lives. Otherwise, we're going to get off track like the Israelites did. Next, notice the basis of why John is told not to worship the angel. It is that he is, that this angel is his fellow servant. He said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. So the angel is a, is a fellow servant with John and anyone who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Angels serve with us. Interesting term there. Sin doulos is the term. 
And doulos is a term for slave is what it literally means. Sin is with. Uh, see, we, can, we get a lot of our English uh, uh, phrases and words from the Greek language as well. With slave. Be a slave with is what it literally means. Angels, according to Hebrews 1.14, are ministering spirits. They're created to minister for God. Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits, speaking of angels, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's what angels do. Of course, we should not be worshiping them, even though they may look different than, than we do and have a different role than perhaps you and I do. Nevertheless, uh, we are not to uh, worship them because they're just like us. They were created to serve him. Personally, I believe the angels were created at some point during the six days of creation, probably very early on for whatever reason. Uh, God chose not to reveal that expressly in the book of Genesis, but other places do say that everything that was made was made in those six days. And uh, that was, in fact, the basis for the law uh, in the book of Exodus, that, he, that the God who created everything that, is, that we can see and we can't see is the one who's giving us, giving the Israelites this law. They were created to serve God, just like we are created to serve God. Psalm 103, 20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And this is not only true for angels, it's true for us as believers. We aren't uh, saved so that we can uh, just sit sour and soak. We are saved so that we can serve. That's the whole purpose of us being saved. God wants people to do his work for him. And you, as a believer in Christ, are the ones that he wants to do it. And that, that should be uh, pretty, you should, the reason for that should be uh, self-evident. God is going to accomplish his will in this world. It would be very easy for him to just do it all himself. Uh, but what is going to have more of an impact? What is going to bring him more glory? Doing it th through a mandate of his own or doing it through the works of broken earthen vessels like us. Of course, the, the latter will get him more glory. If he's able to accomplish his will through fallen people uh, submitting to him and doing it, him doing it through them, that shows his power is even greater than if he just does it on his own. Uh, and Notice something else about these, this statement here. He said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. That, that word there is, is interesting. 
uh, it, it is indicative of the fact that we are part of a family. That's why it, it uses this term brother. We're in this together. It's not being uh, gender exclusive there or, you know, being a, uh, we won't even, <laughs> we won't even go down that. If you're a, find yourself to be a female, you don't have to be offended that he says your brethren there, you're included in this. Uh, it's just kind of a generic term that the angel is using there to refer to people who have trusted in him. Your brethren, we are all part of a family. We're part of the family of God through faith in Christ. Uh, Ephesians three fourteen and 15 makes that very clear to us. If I can find it in my Bible, somehow it didn't make it onto my sheet here. Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family and in heaven and on earth derives its name. We are part of his family, this, uh, and this comes from heaven itself. And also, it's not just uh, any generic person, it is a person who is having the testimony of Christ. And again, the, language, the English language kind of loses what is, is being expressed in the Greek, the term that is translated as, as uh, what actually does it say? They hold the testimony of Jesus is really, the, it is based on the term echo in the Greek, which is the, the verb to have. So they are, and it's also uh, a present active participle. Participle being a, a word that can function as either a noun or, and it has a verb tendencies to it. They are, these are people who are having the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's not just hold. Hold is just kind of blah. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't give it the punch that it actually has. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who are having the testimony of Jesus or that they have it now. This is part of who they are, the present active participle. They have it now. It's ongoing into the future. We have this testimony of Jesus. We have it forever. We're having it is what he is expressing. We're holding it. It is part of who we are. Once you have trusted in Christ, you have eternal life. You are having it. It is ongoing. John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Doesn't say whoever believes and promises to never do anything wrong again or whoever believes and follows this set of rules perfectly will have eternal life. No, it says whoever believes. And in fact, it's actually a, a participle there as well. Whoever is believing. When you believe you have this and you will not perish into eternity, you shall have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already 
Why? Because he's a dirty, rotten sinner and will never be good for anything? No, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. It could not be any more clear. Jesus could not have driven that message home any more clear to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, it is not incumbent upon you to keep the law to see the kingdom. You have to be born again to see the kingdom. The only way you can be born again is by believing in the Son. When you believe in the Son, you are born again, then you will see the kingdom. Then you are, in the words of Revelation, receiving the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will be in the kingdom. You will be with God for eternity if you trust in him. And that's what the angel is saying here. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who are holding or who are having the testimony of Christ. We are saved for ever. Having this testimony of Christ is intrinsic to being a believer. The the two go together. As a believer, you have the testimony of Jesus because that is what you are believing in. We believe in his testimony. His, uh, that term for testimony there is marturia, his witness, what he said and did. That's what we are holding on to. Christ, when he was on the earth, testified to who he is, and then he demonstrated it by going to the cross, physically dying for our sins, and then rising again. Who he was was further uh, clarified by his resurrection. He conquered death when he rose again. And so since he conquered death... He can offer that life to you and to me. He took care of the consequences of sin. Therefore, we can trust in him and he can give us the life that he is a part of who he is. And this angel is reminding John, hey, I'm not the one who died for your sins. God is worship him. I am just a fellow servant like you. I have been created to serve God. That's what I am doing. You have been created to serve God, John. You have been created to serve God, believer. Don't worship me, worship him. And then notice the rest of this phrase here, uh, with this last section I've entitled Fearless Futurism because it has an F and it makes a good alliteration. But the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel concludes this his message with, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus Uh, is very much faceted in, uh, well, I guess you could say in three different ways. There is a testimony of life in the Son. That is what Jesus brought to the world, that there is life in the Son. 1 John 5, 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. 
The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. If you are tr trusting in Christ, according to what John says here, if you have believed in him, then, then you have the testimony as a part of who you are. The testimony of God is this, that God has given us eternal life in this life, and in it is in his Son. That is the testimony of Christ. It's the testimony of uh, the Scriptures uh, and there's, there's just no, there's no other way around it. The testimony of Christ during his life, uh, there is one way to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ, John 14. This word testimony is an interesting word, marturia, I mentioned er earlier. Uh, John, it's used in the New Testament 37 times. John is, uses it 31 times of the 37 in his writings. And furthermore, uh, the other writers, the other six times it's used, it's in fact used exactly the opposite way. John uses it to testify to the truth. The other authors, when they use it, are referring to the testimony of the Pharisees, which was untrue. John is someone who is very, very interested in the truth and this concept of truth. That's why he records uh, the words of Pontius Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? The age-old question. John seems to be in his writings telling us, well, I know what truth is. It's found in the scriptures. It's found in Christ. He is the very embodiment of truth. And this testimony of Jesus is the testimony of life in the Son. You know, the fact of the matter is that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. According, from, uh, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, that's true from the scriptures, but it's also just true from uh, observation of people around us. Most, most people uh, ponder these kinds of things. Uh, uh, you know, where does life come from? Why do people die? Uh, why are we here? These kinds of things. If there is a beginning to this creation, how, how did it all start? Most all of these kinds of arguments with atheistic type of people eventually make their way back to the beginning. How did it all start? Oh, just random chance. Or <laughs> if it wasn't random chance that is highly unlikely, uh, then there had to be a cause. If there's a cause, then there must be an uncaused cause. And who is that? Who is the one who caused all of these things to happen? That has to be God. And when people get to that point, then they're automatically wondering, well, what happens to me when I die? Those are kind of the two main questions that, that people have in life. How does all of this start? What's the point? And what happens when I die? And if there was, if the if the beginning is pointless and by chance, well, then the end is kind of the same thing. We're left with a kind of a pointless existence. Uh, and we see that just in life in general. The greatest of people die and are gone and forgotten 
barely remembered. And uh, the fact of the matter is that there is something after this life, and how do we get it? Well, according to the scriptures and according to the God-man who lived, we get that life through faith in the Son. And we see this in the book of Revelation. That's kind of the whole point of the book, is to reveal the testimony of the Son. Revelation 1.1, the, rev, uh, this, the book begins by saying, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Christ, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So the message came from God the Father to Jesus Christ, to an angel, to John, to us. Verse 2, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John says, this is the point of the book of Revelation, is to reveal the testimony of the Son. And clearly, that testi- the testimony of the Son has a lot to do with the future. In fact, most of the book is dedicated to the future. The whole book is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Most of this particular book is targeted towards the future. Obviously, that is important to God. The Bible, it, uh, in general, is the story of how God is restoring creation. He created everything. He created it to be perfect. Man sinned, messed it up. God's plan for returning it back to the way that he created it to be. That, that is the story of the Bible in a nutshell. And the fact of the matter is, we're not there yet. There are still events to come in the future. John is revealing what those events will be that lead to the creation being restored to the way God intended it to be. And that is the spirit of prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There is so much more to the message of Jesus than the present. We see this in the book of Matthew. Uh, Yes, Jesus is very concerned with how we live today. He was very concerned with how the Israelites were living at the time when he was there. The overwhelming tendency of the Israelites was to be very legalistic, uh, set up barriers around the law so much so that that we don't break any of these laws. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, we miss the whole point of the law, and we've created our own legalistic system. So Jesus spends a lot of time condemning that. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Matthew 5 through 7, uh, showing Israel how you're misinterpreting the law. You are wrong when it comes to the law uh, in the way that you should be applying it to your life. He also spent a lot of time talking about the future, Matthew 24 and 25. The book of Matthew is basically revolves around five discourses of Jesus. The two longest ones are the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse. What's going on in the present and what will take place in the future? That is the testimony of Christ. It is the spirit of prophecy. 
John wrote an, a, a very big section of the New Testament in the Gospel of John, his three epistles in the book of Revelation. The Gospel of John, very concerned with the present, how to have eternal life, Revelation, the future. What is going to take place in the future? And so uh, you cannot have the gospel without prophecy. I mean, you can. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that you have to be a premillennial, pre-tribulational uh, dispensationalist in order to be saved. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that when you separate the gospel from future events, you're getting half the message. Can you still be saved and go to heaven? Yes, you could. There's one condition, faith in the Jesus of the Bible who died for your sins on the cross. If you're trusting in that, you have eternal life. Although, man, you're just not getting the whole message. You're not getting the motivation for how to live the Christian life. That's why we uh, make so much mention of the three tenses of salvation. Trusting in Christ justifies you. That delivers you from the penalty of sin. If you're a believer now, you've done that in the past. That's why we sometimes call that the past tense of salvation. Now, as a believer, you're living uh, on this earth. You're walking with him. This is the process of sanctification, being delivered from the power of sin in your life. A lot of the New Testament is dedicated to uh, this tense of salvation, the middle tense or present tense of our salvation. Uh, doing this, being sanctified, does not get you this, does not justify you. Walking with the Lord does not justify you. Believing in the Lord justifies you. Then you walk with him in order to be delivered from the power of sin in your life today so that when he comes again for you and catches you up and glorifies you, gives you a glorified body and you stand before him uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, you will receive rewards based on how you did this. This is a future event. That hasn't happened yet. Obviously, we're not glorified yet. At that point, we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. That is the future tense of our salvation. This whole thing is important. This has to do with future events, glorification. It's all part of the message. If you're only getting this, if you're only getting the gospel, how to be saved, that first part of the message, man, you're missing this sanctification and you're missing this. And chances are that when uh, there, there's a very good likelihood that, it, that your first tense isn't right if you don't have these right as well. They go together as, as a package. Faith alone and Christ alone justifies you. Then he indwells us with his Holy Spirit, gives us his word, convicts us of sin and so that we can walk with him looking forward to the time when we will be 
glorified. The three tenses of our salvation, one incredible, wonderful package that all goes together. And uh, clearly, the book of Revelation and these future events are important to the message. John spent some time writing them down for us to to make that uh, very true. And so we can fearlessly hold to futurism, to, to a literal outlook on this book of Revelation and the events that are going to take place. Because after all, if we believe that Jesus came, literally came to the earth, lived a perfect life, died for, went to the cross, died for our sins and rose again, we believe that as Christians without any hesitation. How many of us were there to witness it physically with our, with our eyes? Uh, none of us. <laughs> we take it by faith, of course, because it's written in God's word. Then, if that's true, and it is, then by definition, there's really no reason to doubt the future testimony to be literally true. We weren't there to witness the past events, uh, and the future events haven't happened yet. There's no reason to not believe that those won't literally come true the same way that the events of the past were literally true. Uh, we accept Christ going to the cross without hesitation. We should not accept what is written here, written literally without hesitation either. And these are, these events are important to our outlook on this present life and act as motivators. These future events act as motivators for us to be faithful to him today. That's why the, the entirety of the message is important. Trust in Christ, live for him today because he's coming again and these events are going to take place. He has this glorious future in store for us, so we ought to live for him today. Uh, many, many, many examples throughout the New Testament. Philippians 2, every knee is going to bow before Christ when he comes again, so live for him today. Romans 13, the time is almost here, so stop living in immorality. Stop living in the darkness because Christ can come again at any moment for you. Live for him now. Romans 14, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so start living for him today. Get ready for that judgment seat of Christ. It could come at any moment. First and second Thessalonians, two entire books about how we should live for uh, Christ today because his return is imminent. His return in the rapture is imminent. Over and over and over, you see reference to future events being motivators for godly living today. There's, there is uh, no truth in the statement that, that you may sometimes hear, those who are the most heavenly minded are the least earthly good. Well, according to the scriptures, it is exactly, precisely the opposite of that. Those who are motivated by our heavenly future with Christ are the most motivated to live for him today. That's just the facts 
of the scripture. So we can fearlessly hold to a futurist outlook on the book of Revelation because that's the entire point of why God is revealing it to us, to show us the future events so that we will live for him today and be bold for him today. Revelation twenty two twenty. the book ends with, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He can come again at any moment for us. So be bold in your witness for him. Don't let people shame you into not believing in prophecy and its importance. It's very important uh, according to the scriptures. In fact, it is the very testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is, it is one message that if you're only getting part of it, and there is also an equal danger that we can even see among our some of our dispensational friends, that you don't want to divorce salvation from future events because you can get a bad gospel. You also don't want to present only prophecy because then uh, your prophecy gets messed up because you're not teaching the whole Bible. And, oh, by the way, yeah, there's a really important part of the message. To be included in the future, you've got to have salvation correct. It is, it is one complete package. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of Jesus that we find in the scriptures, particularly the book of Revelation, as it is uh, the spirit of prophecy. We thank you for the fact that we have salvation through faith in Christ. We thank you that you are with us today the Holy Spirit who indwells us, convicts us of sin, and leads us into righteousness. We thank you for him, and we thank you for the fact that you are coming again, and that you are coming again for your church at any moment. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you in the time that we have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.